G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane. I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Brothers and sisters, this morning I want to challenge our idea um, of glory, of what is truly glorious. Uh, and I'm hoping in John 17 it pulls us back into line with Jesus. Now, to put it negatively... What has gone wrong with our sense of glory? Well, I think our culture, I think our world, I think just our own fallen human sinful tendencies have eroded and diminished our sense of what is truly glorious in this world. I think that's what we're going to find. And that's, that's very much to our loss, but it's also to the loss of the people around us in our lives, I think we'll see. But more positively, Jesus today, Jesus doesn't just call us to live a more glorious life, to get on and be more glorious in the way that you live. He shows it to us. In fact, he lives it for us. And that's what I'd like us to see together. It's a passage that I find inspiring, if a little unsettling, more than a little unsettling, uncomfortable. Um, Before we pray, though, and come to John 17, can I open with a quick couple of stories? So Robert Cialdini, Robert Cialdini, he tells us a couple of stories about glory, but glory perhaps in an arena where we're kind of used to it, actually, glory in sport, or more, more pointedly, in fans of sport and how fans relate to sporting glory. You know, we we flick on the telly, we see the athletes there, we know the picture, uh, an athlete in his or her glory on the podium, and deservedly so, um, or a whole team with the medals around their neck. We know what sporting glory is. What about amongst the fans? Well, Robert Cialdini has a couple of stories on glory in sport and its flip side. He says, in one experiment... In one experiment, researchers counted the number of school sweatshirts worn on Monday morning by students on the campuses of seven prominent football universities. It's in uh, America, you see. So Arizona State, Louisiana, Notre Dame, Michigan, Ohio State, Pittsburgh, Southern California. All right, so they're watching who is wearing the school colours on Monday morning. That's the question. The results showed that many more homeschool shirts were worn if the football team had won its game on the prior Saturday. What's more, the larger the margin of victory, the more such shirts appeared. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? The larger the margin of victory, the more such shirts appeared. He says, it wasn't a close, hard-fought game that caused the students to dress themselves, literally, in success. Instead, it was a clear, crushing conquest, smacking of indisputable superiority. Do you see? Do you like that? Monday morning, you could see it. You could tell the margin of victory on Saturday night based on how many people were wearing the team, the school colours. Who was given a trouncing? Uh, And I want to be caught up in that and so I'll wear the colours on Monday morning, do you see? I want everyone to know who my team is. What about the flip side? Have a listen to this. I hadn't heard this. This tendency, he says, to bask in reflected glory by publicly trumpeting our connections to successful others has its mirror image in our attempt to avoid being darkened by the show of others' defeat. He tells the story. In the luckless 1980 season... Fans of the New Orleans Saints football team 
began to appear at the stadium wearing paper bags to conceal their faces as the team suffered loss after loss. they, They went through the season with one win and 15 losses. Can you imagine that? Who's the equivalent? Who are you barracking for at the moment in the AFL? Anyway. As their team suffered loss after loss, more and more fans donned the bags until TV cameras were regularly able to record the extraordinary image of gathered masses of people shrouded in brown paper with nothing to identify them but the tips of their noses. He says, I find it instructive that during a late season contest, when it was clear that the Saints were at last going to win, the fans discarded their bags and went public once more. You can see it, can't you? Here's the question to have in mind as we come to John's Gospel in John 17 in a moment. When it comes to Jesus' place in my life, am I more like a New Orleans Saints fan with barely the tip of my Christian nose showing in my life? Or am I more like the footy fans on a Monday morning following Saturday's crushing conquest um, of the opposition? Could we please pray together? Our great God in heaven, reawaken within us, please, our hearts and our minds to the glory of our God in Christ Jesus. Not, not just our minds, so that we can know the facts and the measure, but our hearts as well, so that we'd be actually moved, O oh Lord our God, to respond appropriately to you as you really are. Father in heaven, expand the horizons, please of our Christian lives as we delve deeper into your word today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps you could join me in a quick bodily illustration. You'll see why in just a moment. Could you please take with me a long, slow, deep breath inwards? Could we do that together? That is John 17. The calm before the storm, that quiet moment of anticipation before the starter's gun fires and the fury unfolds in John's Gospel from chapter 18 and onwards. John 17 stands as this metaphorical deep breath for Jesus before what? Before Judas and then the mob and then the courts and then the soldiers and then the frailty of his own human body impel him toward the bitter end of the cross of Calvary in just hours' time in the story now. The pace is furious from here on, from chapter 18, but not chapter 17. It is the long, last, calm, measured breath. So let's have a listen. After Jesus, John 17, verse 1, after Jesus said this to his disciples, chapter 16 and before, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. Father, the time has come. Now, let me just ask you this morning. If you knew that the time had come, that the fury was about to unfold in your life, that things were about to get well and truly um, out of hand, at least humanly speaking, and that your bitter end was only hours away, if you knew that you had less than a day to live, how would you pray? How would you finish this prayer? which we'll be looking at this week and over the next couple of weeks. How would you pray if you knew that the time had come? That's if we thought to pray at all. (laughs) Jesus did. 
If you had less than a day to live and your time has come, how would your prayer begin? I reckon, I reckon we'd focus on people, wouldn't we? You know, just thinking realistically, I did. God, let me see the kids one last time. Let me hold mum's hand. Let me square things away with dad. Let me tell her that I'm sorry. For better or for worse, I think we'd focus on us and others if we knew that our time was up. Jesus, he shoots for something bigger. Can we have a look? Let's just read the five verses there. They're only short um, from verse one. After Jesus said this to his companions, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Folks, what does glorify mean? We're going to have to, trouble, we're going to, have to uh, traverse that, aren't we? What does glorify mean? It's mentioned a few times there. And why would Jesus make that his parting wish? The time has come and so it's all about glory. Father, glorify your son, verse 1, that your son may glorify you. I have brought you glory, verse 4. Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Yes, but what does glorify mean? Have you got a working definition? What does that even mean? It's not a word that we use very often. Now, this is where the dictionaries, they they help us, but they kind of don't as well. So to glorify, according to the, you know, Greek word Bible dictionary things, glorify means to clothe in splendour, to cause to have splendid greatness. Does that really help us? Kind of. Jesus isn't asking for a new outfit, though, to clothe in splendour. Uh, to glorify, or slightly different, to glorify, to enhance someone's reputation in another person's eyes. So if I want to make you look glorious in your eyes, then I'm talking to you about how glorious that person, how wonderful that person is. I want you to see that person as splendid and truly wonderful. But do you know the problem with that dictionary definition stuff? The problem comes when you try to square all that splendid, splendour, glory, magnificence, reputation stuff with what Jesus is clearly, obviously talking about. Why is that a problem? Because the time has come. He's talking about his death. He's talking about his crucifixion. He's talking about walking the Calvary Road. That's what lies ahead, the end of his life. And this is the last request. As he faces that end, Father, clothe me in splendour as I clothe you in splendour. What, in that kind of splendour? The splendour of going to the cross? This doesn't make any sense. Do you see the problem? Now, especially if you're new um, to the Christian scene, but I suppose really for all of us, if I were to ask you to paint for me very quickly a picture of the glorious life, what would it look like? If I were to ask you to paint for me a picture of the reputable, the splendorous, the splendid, the wonderful, the beautiful, the glorious life, what would you be drawing a picture of? Would it look like the coming hours of Jesus' life here? Uh, The splendorous, the splendid, the enhanced reputation, would we be painting a picture 
of our Lord on the approach to his crucifixion. It's kind of a question of what we value in life, what we think life is really about, isn't it? What we think is the good life. Our world, is this fair to say, our world's view of the glorious life, what would be on our world's picture of the glorious life? I think there'd be a whole lot more youth, wouldn't there? And tan skin and international travel and loud laughing and designer homes and financial freedoms and pretty friends. Not too pretty, not prettier than you, but pretty all the same. I mean, that's glory. Those are glorious. There's a reputation. We so often understand this prayer as if it were rather gloomy. It is not. This is the late Australian Leon Morris saying this. I think he helps us to get how Jesus could view what is coming as glorious, truly and deeply, and the best and the only way to spend his final hours. Uh, so we, are, we so often understand this prayer as if it were rather gloomy. It is not. It is uttered by one who has just affirmed that he has overcome the world. End of chapter 16. Jesus is looking forward to the cross, but in a mood of hope and joy, not one of despondency here. The prayer marks the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, but it looks forward to the ongoing work which would now be the responsibility first of the immediate disciples and then of those who would later believe through him. He's looking forward. There's the hope and the joy rather than despondency and despair. I think that points us in the right direction with this glory business. The glory of Christ's cross It can't be in the injustice of a pointless death, can it? You can't glory in that. Could we take another look at verse 2? Where is the glory in the cross? Uh, We'll pick it up from the end of verse 1. Father, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those that you've given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. You see, Jesus wants to be glorified by his Father. He wants to bring glory to his Father, not just by wearing the right jersey on the Monday morning. No, can I just extend that metaphor? No, this conversation happens, doesn't it, in the locker room. Early on Saturday evening, ball in hand, they're going out to win. Let's show them what we're made of, Father. Let's show them the kind of, uh, let's show the world the kind of God that we are. Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. And what kind of God is that? The kind of God who would go to his death to give sinners eternal life. The kind of God who would go to the cross to bring us in with God, who would lose the game and throw the whole season to mix the metaphor even further so that we would know God, we'd know him as our God, we'd know his love for us. Father, as this unfolds, may we shine true glory in the world, do you see? So let me ask you then, does that life look glorious to you in your estimation? One preacher, Stephen Neal, he reckons that unless we can delight in God's glory there in Jesus, then we're going to be hopeless evangelists. 
Uh, Why? Because we'll never convince anyone of a glory that hasn't gripped our hearts first. He says, um, Stephen Neal says, when a man by... He was writing a long time ago. When a man or woman... When a man by constant contemplation, constant contemplation of the passion and resurrection of our Lord finds himself so inflamed with love for God and man that he cannot bear the thought of any man living and dying without the knowledge of God, he may begin to bear the cross of Christ. If, as he bears it, this longing for the glory of God and for the salvation of all men becomes so great that it fills all his thoughts and desires, then he has that one thing without which no man can truly be a messenger of Christ. May I put it bluntly? Does it stir your heart that Christ walked the Calvary road for you? Does it stir your heart that he went to the cross for your eternal life? Do you see that as a glorious, as a beautiful, as a spectacular thing? As the most beautiful spending of a human life and last hours that you can think of? Let me say, brothers and sisters, each day that our delight in Christ grows dim or cools or goes off the boil, that is a day, isn't it, to renew a constant contemplation of the passion and resurrection of our Lord. If your assurance has waned, your assurance that eternal life is yours, that you know God indeed, if your assurance has waned, or perhaps you're fine, but your spouse or your best friend, or your kids. I mean, what do you say when, how do I really know God loves me, or wants me, or will save me? I mean, me. Point them, and point yourself, not to warm, fuzzy feelings, or how much their friends like them, or don't, but to the cold, hard reality of the cross. Point them there, cold and hard for Jesus, but the warmest embrace for us, the brightest, glorious splendour, of our God on display. That he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you've sinned. Now may I close with this, um, and especially here to friends this morning, perhaps who can't say that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Um, I want to invite you warmly Um, But urgently, um, won't you look upon this strange glory of Jesus Christ here in these verses? Won't you look upon the strange glory of Jesus Christ? Now, understand me rightly. I don't mean the splendour of the church. You know, the splendour of uh, the church with all its traditions and buildings and cathedrals. And rich denominations with, if we're honest, our checkered past and our failings. No, no, I mean the real glory. Where it's to be found. The character of a God who would look upon his dying hours with joy if they were spent making sure that you'd know the kind of God that you're dealing with. That's our Jesus. But I do warn you though, it's a strange glory. It's a glory that might cause some people to don their paper bags and leave nothing but the tips of their Christian noses on display for the world. It might cause some to leave their Jesus footy jerseys home on Monday morning. Why? Well, because for now, 
It's a glory that says there's more to life than me. There's more important things in life than you. There's more to life than having the appearance of victory in this life. And a life well spent is a life making much of our God who would make himself nothing to spend forever with us. Now, to me, that is the kind of glory worthy of our lives and giving our whole lives to. And so the question is, would you agree? Shall we pray together? Father God, as we look at this sobering moment in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, this calm before the storm, we pray, God, take our lives, take my life and let it be beautiful for you, not just glamorous or neat or clean and tidy, but may we live lives that actually strive to see the opinions of people around us changed with regard to you that they'd see the strange glory of Christ in us and through us. Father, thank you that by your Holy Spirit's mighty work, you've given us eternal life. You've caused us to know who you truly are as we look upon the Lord Jesus in the gospel. Actually, you've given us even that eternal life, as Jesus describes it, here and now. We know you, our Father, even now. So may we walk through life as children walking in the presence of our God. May we walk today as your children who bear the family resemblance. Lord God, please forgive us on Christ's account for losing sight and perspective of what matters, devoting our time and attention, ourselves, our evenings, our money, our efforts to things that just don't deserve that level of attention that we've given them. At bottom, Father, we confess it's a shallow idolatry for we know that our lives are to be lived for your glory and not for anything less. We pray, Father, for those perhaps in our midst, even here this morning, whose assurance of salvation has faltered, maybe this week. Dear God, would you renew their focus on Christ, please, our Saviour? And we pray too, O Lord God, For those, again, perhaps even here, but certainly in our lives, who have yet to take firm hold of Christ as their Lord, as the Lord whom they serve and prize and worship, the God and man who alone can bring them to God. Father, extend, please, your generous mercy to them, just as you have to us. May they, even today, lean on you in a new faith, a new life of knowing you, our glorious God, through the Lord Jesus, and we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.